This is not the first time I've sat staring at the computer screen, wondering how to begin or what to say. As a former TV news reporter, I know how to write succinctly about complex issues. I spent most of my career finding ways to allow people to quickly grasp whatever was happening that day. Perhaps what stops me is a feeling I cannot shake, that it's premature, even emotionally offensive, to write an obituary while he is still alive. We do it all the time in network news, whenever a notable is seriously ill. That way we are ready when the time comes to break the sad headline with a touching tribute that invites us all to share vicarious memories. But in this case, who really cares? Except our immediate family, who also lives in limbo. The man I knew, loved and married, has been absent and anonymous for years, even though he lives at home and is cared for by me. Close friends and co-workers abandoned us long ago. It was too disconcerting to walk through our door and see someone who was just like them, being destroyed in slow motion by an insidious disease for which there is no cure. I understand how they feel, even though I was left behind too, and I'm not sick. How do I write about a 20-year gaping hole in our lives, an intimate part of our history, when it's still not over? I'm not sure when people at work realized that something was wrong with Harvey, but I remember vividly how his behavior at home changed. This commanding, strong-willed, yet considerate man became upset when things didn't go his way. The slightest thing set him off. If he couldn't find his wallet, keys, papers, accusations flew that someone, anyone at home but Harvey, had taken them. When I mentioned the change in his behavior, he erupted in anger. In the face of his wrath, I went silent, infuriating him even more. These episodes usually ended with Harvey storming out, slamming the front door, and driving off. It was painful, and I wondered if our marriage was in trouble. Now I know that this behavior is common in the early stages of the disease, when symptoms are emerging, but not yet full-blown. The Academy of Neurology reports that pressures on family life due to Alzheimer's begin long before active dementia is apparent. And this was my experience, too. Individuals start to privately fight the earliest stages of dementia, but are unable to articulate what's wrong. The stress on them and their loved ones is overwhelming. It's impossible to detect exactly when this process starts, and it was especially difficult in the case of someone like Harvey. He was the type of person who always got noticed. When he walked in the room, you knew he was there. At the National Institutes of Health, where he had worked since the 1960s, most of the male scientists wore khakis, a wrinkled, non-ironed shirt, and a blue blazer to work every day. Harvey was always impeccably dressed in the latest styles. As a high school student, he had worked in a men's clothing shop to earn extra money, and his father never let him spend the cash on clothes. Harvey made up for lost time as an adult. Most of the days he had to wear a white lab coat, but still managed to assert his sartorial taste with English cuff shirts, French silk ties, and the most flamboyant socks peeking above his soft Italian suede or leather loafers. Harvey was on the international scientific circuit and traveled frequently to Europe to attend conferences and present papers. 
He always returned home with a refrigerated box containing medical samples and, tucked amid the dry ice, tins of foie gras, petrosian caviar, and smoked salmon from Fouchon, a gourmet food shop on the right bank of the Seine. His suitcase was a gourmand's treasure trove, boxes of richard hemmé chocolate, macaroons from La Dorée on the Champs-Élysées, and at least two or three bottles of wine wrapped in his clothes. There were new ties, the old one stained purple from a tasting tour in Burgundy or Bordeaux, his rationale for indulging himself with even more ties. He drove a canary-yellow 911 Porsche to work every day, which he enjoyed so much that I not-so-jokingly referred to it as his mistress. It glimmered in the parking lot at the NIH, a foreign traveler in a land where most of the other cars were sensible, four-door sedans. In the evening, after a long day caring for patients or working in the lab, he liked to hit the gas pedal. I could hear the distinctive engine roar a block away as he entered our street, a ten-minute route he drove for 31 years until the disease impaired his ability to find his way home.